Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on early things, but our citizenship is heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm in the Lord and this way. Dear friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day, uh, for the chance to be with one another, to hear your word, and to uh, have time and space and privilege to uh, meditate on it. We ask that you'd help us to hear it well so that we might know you better and we might make you better known in this world. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they would be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, Paul is uh, the author of the letter to the Philippians, which we just heard uh, Scotia read. And, And I think it's fair to say that sometimes people find Paul a little bit hard to handle. <laughs> uh, you know, like he, he's pretty intense. Um, probably the most fireworks you'll ever see in a seminary classroom or when they're having a discussion about one of Paul's letters, and there are many of them. You now, if a Bible study ever gets riled up, it's usually because of something Paul says. I remember some of our most heated debates at the White Spot uh, um, Bible study uh, used, to, used to be around the letters of Paul. And sometimes it's the details of what he says that, uh, that rub people the wrong way. You know, the household codes, for instance, where we hear that Paul clearly has a, uh, a different understanding of the relationship between husbands and wives and ch- parents and children, even masters and slaves that are deeply formed by his first century patriarchal worldview and don't always translate very well into our time and place. Now, I think that there are ways to read those passages redemptively, but I understand why they rub people the wrong way, why they frustrate folks. Sometimes, though, I think what drives people nuts about Paul is that he says things like this. He says, join in being imitators of me. (laughs) 
uh, which is a little bit of a different translation than the one that, that Scotia read, but in my translation, that's how this passage begins. Join in being imitators of me. And is there anything more irritating <laughs> to our sensibilities than someone telling us that we should do things the way that they do them? I mean, the audacity, honestly. Who does Paul think he is? Join in being imitators of me. I mean, take a long walk off a short dock, pal. Come on. And maybe that doesn't bug you the way it bugs me, uh, or at least has bugged me. I, I, I know it. it uh, I've, I've struggled with this kind of thing in Paul before. I know, it, I know it bugs others, and partly because of, I think, kind of a misplaced humility. Uh, you know, lots of us would just never, never dream of saying such a thing. Be imitators of me. I remember talking to a former uh, United Church of Canada moderator, and if you're kind of new to the United Church, that's basically the public face of the denomination. And we were talking about the process of, of becoming moderator, and basically what happens is someone has to nominate you, and then you uh, are elected by the wider church. And she said that when she was first nominated, her, her response initially was something on the order of, like, I could never be moderator because I'm not faithful or prayerful or whatever enough. I forget exactly what she said, but the point is that she felt like she wasn't kind of a serious enough Christian to do this very public Christian role. And yet, as an ordained minister, this person happened to be an ordained minister, she, she also recognized that if she felt this way about one particular role, then what did that mean about what she was getting, in, uh, getting into in the rest of her life, in, in her congregation, week over week? You know, if she couldn't represent Jesus well in one way, how, how could she do so in another? And I, I would say to her immense credit, she didn't, you know, throw in the towel. She didn't retire from ministry. Uh, she leaned more deeply into her calling, right? She got serious about prayer. She submitted more seriously to the way of Jesus. She set out by faith to become the kind of person that she felt she ought to be as someone called and claimed by Christ. She set out to be someone worth imitating. She set aside the false humility that would convince her that she wasn't really fit for Christian uh, leadership. And she dug into her, Jesus' call on her life. And I, I found that instructive and, and challenging because here's the thing. I mean, if we can't say to someone, if you want to be a Christian, do what I do, uh, then the problem may not be that we're too humble. <laughs> the problem might be that we are doing things we know we ought not to do or not doing things we know we ought to do. And I, I don't mean just in a general, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God kind of way. That's obviously true. But I mean in a more of a, a life orientation kind of way. And of course, the way of Jesus isn't about legalistic rule following or else. But there is no question that the way of Jesus makes demands on us, expects things of us. Now, Jesus often says, uh, tells his followers what to do, right? This is how you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples, if you love one another as I loved you. Not the way you would like to love each other, but as I loved you. Come follow me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Anyone who loves me will do the things that I do and greater things. Whoever listens to my word and does them is like someone building a house on a strong foundation of solid rock, which stands firm even when life storms batter it. But anyone who hears my words and doesn't do them might as well be building a life on sand. And just as we're saved, just because we're saved by grace and we are saved by grace, doesn't mean that we do whatever we want. 
We're either growing in Christ-likeness, maturing in faith, or we're not. We're either learning to walk more and more in the way of Jesus in step with the Spirit, or we're not. Which may be another reason that we might not like what Paul has to say here. We just don't like being told what to do. We are well-trained in the modern virtue of individualism. Everybody's a beautiful and unique snowflake. None of us are paper dolls all cut the same. We love the trailblazers and the visionaries and the, the, those who march to the beat of their own drum. And to be fair, I think there's something to that, theologically speaking. I do really believe that God delights in us as individuals. That God takes these wild and precious lives of ours with cosmic seriousness. But we can forget that even the most expressive art needs a frame of some sort. <laughs> and rugged individualism tends not to be as free as advertised. Now, it's amazing how often those who claim they've thrown off the, the yoke of some kind of conformity or another end up looking and sounding an awful lot like each other. <laughs> because we're naturally imitative creatures. We learn from one another. Now, the evidence is, is pretty conclusive that we become like the people we hang out with, sometimes subconsciously or unconsciously. We learn to mimic because that's how we communicate trust and affection, that we are safe people. We want to belong. We want to fit in. We are made for relationship, not for isolated individualism. And try as we might, that fact eventually catches up to us one way or another. And still, the author of Genesis makes clear that that primordial sin, or the temptation rather, is not money, sex, and power. It's to be as gods for ourselves. Not beloved, interconnected creatures of the Creator, but autonomous and self-satisfied beings. Which, of course, is a lie. We see that right away. It's always a lie. You know, that, that's not who or how we're made to be. And in the end, when Paul says, be imitators of me, I think it's not actually really about becoming exactly like he is. I think it's about our collective identity. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. He's pleading with us to remember who and whose we are, our, our truest identity. We're not made to be people whose God is our bellies, twisting shame into glory, given over to the things that are perishing. Isn't that an evocative image? Their God is their belly. Their God is their stomach, I think is the way it was rendered there. Their God is their belly. They, they live to satisfy their own cravings. Their, their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And you know, if you've been reading the Lenten devotional, I, I think that Michael Mole was right yesterday in his Lenten devotional. Um, that this isn't really so much about dividing kind of us from them, as it is recognizing that we are all tempted by the gods of our bellies. <laughs> Just before this, Paul has been talking about striving for the way of Jesus, chasing after the prize of the heavenly call in Christ. He's not suggesting this is easy. He's not saying, here's a five-point plan for becoming perfect Christians. He's not saying that he's reached the summit of all things Christian. In fact, he says straight up, not that I have reached the goal. What he's calling us to is not to imitate his perfection, but his pursuit. He's not calling us to imitate his perfection. He's calling us to imitate his pursuit of the way of Jesus. He's insisting that we are meant for the God who comes to us, not the gods that would consume us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And heaven is not just some vague place off in the sky. 
Heaven is the realm in which God's will is perfectly done, where God's love is fully known, where hungry bellies are really filled and every tear is wiped away, where there is no separation between God and humanity because that intimacy for which we are created is restored. Which means that Paul is saying something extraordinary about us. He's acknowledging it about him too, but he's saying it about us, that we are made to be people in and through whom heaven breaks into this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are people learning to speak with the accent of heaven, learning the rhythms and mannerisms of heaven. We are people reclaiming our true identity as those made in the image of God, not conformed to the patterns of the gods of this world. And to say that we are citizens of heaven is to say that we are people learning to look more and more like Jesus, which is sometimes the opposite of the patterns that we know, the ones that come so familiar to us. I mean, go and read uh, the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and see how that lines up against the world that we know. And know that it was as foolish then as it is now. Right? This season of Lent is, is a time when we prepare ourselves for the way, what the way of Jesus gets him. Right? Which by every worldly standard, it is a devastating humiliation. The cross is a disaster by any familiar metric. And yet we also prepare ourselves for the marvel that that humiliation is transformed into glory. That what is foolishness in the eyes of the world is actually the thing that will save it. Now the ridiculous way of Jesus in life, in death, in resurrection, and in reign actually lays bare the ultimate foolishness of chasing after belly gods, of pursuing the sorts of glory that turn out to be betrayals of our image of God beauty of assuming that all we are is all that we have and can get our hands on. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I think it's important to be really clear that this isn't some sort of religious escapism. Right? It's not Paul's way of saying that whatever happens now doesn't really matter because we'll go to heaven when we die. In fact, I think this has precious little to do with what happens when we die, though I hope for heaven. <laughs> I think it has everything to do with with what happens when we're truly alive. And if we are citizens of heaven, then we are growing up into the likeness of Christ, as Paul says elsewhere. Then we will be people turned, deeply, uh, turned toward and deeply committed to this God-beloved world. If we're imitating Paul, who's getting after the way of Jesus, then we will be increasingly people who forfeit the easy way of self-interest for the sake of the radical and self-giving love of God in and for this world. We'll be learning to love God and the things that God loves with everything we've got. If we're citizens of heaven, ambassadors of Christ, Paul says in another letter, we'll be, we are learning the accent and language of heaven, moving in the rhythms and developing the mannerisms of heaven, and that means that we will be deeply invested in the world around us. We'll be learning to become the answer to our prayer, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. As citizens of heaven, we will be learning to live as people whose hope is in the one who is even here and now making all things new. We'll be people learning to live in anticipation of the day when swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and we will practice war no more. We'll be people learning to live in anticipation of the day when all people will flock to a banquet table loaded up with the best food and drink that money can't buy. 
We'll be people learning to anticipate that day when we gather along the banks of the river of life that flows from the throne of God at the foot of the tree of, the, of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. We'll be people who let that future pull us towards it. Because how we think things will end has a direct and immediate impact on how we live now. Now, Paul is inviting us to live in holy anticipation. We are expecting a savior, he says. We are expecting that God will get the world that God wants. We've already caught a glimpse of it in Jesus. And we get to live now in such a way that when God gets the world God wants, we will be the kinds of people who fit right in. As citizens of heaven on earth, we are to be the kinds of people learning to recognize the lies of the belly gods. That false hope that we are able to satisfy ourselves by ourselves for ourselves. As citizens of heaven, we're meant to be the kinds of people who recognize the deadliness of self-obsession. We've seen time and time again what happens when the world chases after those who chase after their own glory. We've seen time and time again the arrogance that masquerades as power and prestige but only leaves a trail of death and destruction. But in the company of Jesus, crucified and risen, we're, we're learning to see what a sham worldly glory really is. As citizens of heaven, we're meant to be the kinds of people learning to refuse to let our minds and lives be conformed to the patterns of this world as it is, but who let ourselves be transformed for the world as it will be when God gathers everything in heaven and earth in the name of Jesus. And of course, we won't do that perfectly. Not on this side of things. But the good news, I think, is that pretending that we can get it exactly right is actually what it means to be what Paul calls enemies of the cross. You now, above all, as citizens of, of heaven, we will be people learning to live and move and have our being in the grace of God. Learning to live out of our true God-given identity as beloved of God. Trusting that in the end we are made for nothing less than the hope and peace and joy and love of God. And, because of, and we know that because of Jesus. Right? In him, we've seen how far God will go to love us, to free us from our belly gods, to transform our shame into the shape of his glory, to give us a new imagination for how things will be, how they really are. We've seen, as Paul puts it earlier, that Christ has made us his own, has called and claimed us, there's nothing he won't give to be for us. And so we get to give everything to be for him, to make his way ours. You know, I have no idea what to do about the huge problems of this world. I really resonated with John's opening prayer. <laughs> I don't know how to make nations more human. I don't know how to rescue the creation from the wrath of our belly gods. Or how, how to heal the damage done when we chase after our own glory, which turns out to be shame. I don't know how to fix the world any more than Paul did, living in the long shadow of the Roman Empire. But you know, where I used to be annoyed at Paul, I'm starting to love his audacity. Because it's not rooted in what he has done or is doing, it's rooted in what Jesus has done and is doing. Right? Why shouldn't we allow for the same? Why shouldn't we be able to be people who can say, if you want to live differently in the world, do what I do? Not because we're perfect, but because we're pursuing the right thing. 
Why shouldn't we be people who by grace are learning to live and move and have our being as hints and promises of the world that's on its way, this world that teems with love and justice and righteousness? Why shouldn't we be a people, a community, so committed to the resurrection way of Jesus that wherever we find ourselves, in whatever we are doing, the world around us is seduced into something altogether more beautiful than anything our belly gods can offer? Why not us? God, give us grace and guts. Amen. Amen.